hi, this is Glenn Rawson. One of the most powerful ways to share history and heritage is by the telling of stories. We began sharing inspiring stories nearly 30 years ago. Each of those stories is true and was intended to inspire and strengthen faith. Over the years, those stories have reached millions around the world. This podcast is for you to listen, learn, and enjoy. Have you ever noticed, speaking of Christmas, how often we tell the story of Christmas and we skip right over the birth of John the Baptist? Now, I don't know that we should. I mean, after all, the Christmas story in the scriptures begins with John. To neglect John in the telling of that story is like neglecting your preparations for Christmas until the morning of. Before there was John the Baptist, though, there was John the baby. Before Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wrote of Jesus, John the Baptist kept a record first. As in his life, John pointed people to Jesus. So, too, did he also in his birth. Before Gabriel came to Mary, he appeared, as you recall, to an old man named Zacharias in the temple. Fear not, Zacharias, he said, thy prayer is heard, and thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John. The angel promised that this little boy would bring much joy to many people, but not just because he was a baby but because he would be great in the sight of the Lord. Many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God, Gabriel so prophesied. John would go before the Savior and make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Well, Zacharias struggled to believe what he was hearing from the angel. And honestly, I don't blame him. Elizabeth was an old woman, past the age of childbearing. Nonetheless, Mary's miraculous conception was not the first. Before Mary went into hiding with the child, she couldn't explain. Elizabeth was there first. One day, a beautiful young woman, sent by an angel, came into the courtyard of Elizabeth's home. Remember this? And she called out a greeting. Do you remember what happened at Mary's greeting? In the womb, John leaped for joy, and he and his mother were filled with the Holy Ghost. It is sublime that at that powerful moment, John bore witness of the Messiah before he even had a voice. The two sons of prophecy and their sainted mothers spent the next three months together. As John prepared the way for Jesus, so Elizabeth prepared and consoled Mary. Before the people heard the shepherds' witness of a coming Messiah, they were astonished at the new voice and testimony of Zacharias. His prophecies resonated through the Judean hills and hearts of the Jews, filling them with grand expectations. Then and later, all who ever knew 
John couldn't wait to meet Jesus. On the night of the Savior's birth in Bethlehem, John was three months old in Hebron. Knowing what Elizabeth knew of Mary and the bond they shared, I wonder how far away Elizabeth really was from her young cousin. When Herod's soldiers came, you know, they were looking for two famous babies, not one. While the angels sent Joseph and Mary into Egypt to save Jesus, Zacharias sent John and Elizabeth into the wilderness. Joseph and Jesus escaped, but the soldiers killed Zacharias. He would not give up his son. As Jesus grew up with his father Joseph Hewing Wood, so John grew up in the wilderness without Zacharias, eating locusts and wild honey. As Jesus waited and prepared to bring men to his father, so John waited and prepared to bring men to Jesus. As Luke's story of Christmas tells of a special babe whose birth pointed men to Jesus' birth, as John was born to prepare the way, may we be reminded this Christmas that we too, you, are born to prepare the way for the Messiah again. He is coming soon. You are born to bear witness of the Lord Jesus Christ and of his restored gospel and authority. God grant that we be like John, that in all that we are, all that we say, and all that we do, men want to meet him. This next story isn't Christmas, not exactly. May 14, 1832, two Latter-day Saint missionaries came into the town of Charleston, Vermont. The next morning after their arrival, they approached one of the prominent men of the town, Judge Farr, seeking permission to preach in the schoolhouse. Permission was granted, and when the elders stood to speak, Judge Farr was there with two of his sons. The first elder to speak was barely 20 years of age. He spoke of the Book of Mormon, of a new prophet, Joseph Smith, of the gifts of healing and of the working of miracles. Well, at the conclusion of the meeting, Judge Farr invited that first missionary that spoke to come to his home while his companion went home with another family. After supper, the family conversed further on the restoration. As it came time to retire for the night, the judge invited the young missionary to pray. They gathered around the bed of Mrs. Olive Hovey Farr, Judge Farr's sick invalid wife. She had been ill for seven years and was given up by the doctors to die. The missionary, Elder Orson Pratt, prayed for the family and particularly for the healing of Mrs. Farr. At the conclusion of the prayer, he stood 
and walked to the bedside of Mrs. Farr and asked her if she had faith in the Lord Jesus Christ to be healed. She responded that all things were possible with God, and if it was his will that she might be healed, she believed it would be done. Elder Pratt then took her by the right hand and asked her name, and said unto her, Olive, in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, I command you to be made whole. She was healed, made whole in the twinkling of an eye. She raised herself, sat up in bed, called for her clothes, dressed herself, and walked the room and sang praises to God. It caused such rejoicing in the family that there was no sleep that night. That miracle spread through the community and caused such a sensation that the entire family of Winslow and Olive Hovey Farr joined the church along with many others, the Snow family, the Freeman family, a branch of some 60 people was organized, and in time, they gathered with the saints. Now, I've thought about it. What would have happened that night if Elder Pratt had ignored that prompting to bless Sister Farr? What if he'd been too timid to speak up or his faith was too lacking? Interestingly, Sister Olive Farr lived to be 94 years old. She actually outlived Elder Pratt, who blessed her. And one last thing that you may find interesting. April 15, 1846, some 14 years later, at a cold wilderness camp on Locust Creek in Iowa, William Clayton received word from Valate Kimball that his wife had just given birth to a son back in Nauvoo and that mother and baby were healthy and well. In the spirit of rejoicing, Elder Clayton sat down and penned a hymn that would become the great anthem of the pioneers, Come, Come, Ye Saints. Why do I tell you that story? because that young wife's name was Diantha Farr Clayton, daughter of Winslow and Olive. We are all connected. No matter where I go in the world, I discover that it is a very small world and indeed a very small church. We are all part of the family of God, and we have brothers and sisters everywhere. Now, since I talked about that story of the coming forth of that great hymn and that connection to the Farr family, let me go one step further. Brigham Young and the first Latter-day Saint pioneers entered the Salt Lake Valley in July of 1847. You know that. What some don't know is that by December of 1847, there were more than 1,800 saints, who had gathered to the valley, most having arrived in late September and early October. President Young 
and others of the twelve had returned to winter quarters, and John Smith, the uncle of the prophet Joseph, was the presiding priesthood officer in the valley. Not certain of their safety among the Native Americans here, the saints constructed a large fort, and everyone moved in and shared the cramped space. From the diaries, the conditions were terrible. The fort was cold, drafty, and filthy. Mice were an awful problem, as more than one pioneer described walking across the room of her cabin and having a mouse drop out of the thatched roof upon her. A cat was as valuable as a cow, it has been said. Notwithstanding the risk, some saints abandoned the fort the following spring in search of better living conditions. That winter, food was scarce to non-existent. The saints scrounged for whatever was edible and lived on the verge of starvation. Fortunately, that first winter of 47-48 was an open winter, meaning that temperatures were moderate compared to future years, and most snow that fell soon melted. And then came Christmas, 1847. There are accounts of singing, dancing, and much celebration. One young girl, Elizabeth Huffaker, left this account. Quote, I remember our first Christmas in the valley. We all worked as usual. The men gathered sagebrush and some even plowed, for though it had snowed, the ground was still soft, and the plows were used nearly the entire day. Christmas came on Saturday. We celebrated the day on the Sabbath when we all gathered around the flagpole in the center of the fort and there held meeting. And it was a great meeting. We sang praise to God. We all joined in the opening prayer, and the speaking that day has always been remembered. There were words of thanksgiving and cheer. Not an unkind word was uttered. The people were hopeful and buoyant because of their faith in the great work that they were undertaking. After the meeting, we all shook hands with each other. Some wept with joy. The children played in the enclosure and around the sagebrush fire that night. We gathered and sang, Come, come, ye saints, no toil nor labor fear, but with joy wend your way. She said, In the sense of perfect peace and goodwill, I never had a happier Christmas in all my life. End of quote. That is remarkable. These people, refugees, driven, hunted, and hated, had nothing in this valley. But in their eyes, when they had Christ and each other, they had everything. And I would add, if we have Christ and we have each other and we have love, we have it all. Okay, now this next story is a little on the lighter side, and it's thanks to my friend Lynn Kenley, who shared it with me 
Lynn, I didn't get a chance to email you that this was going to be here tonight, so I hope it's okay. As I may have mentioned in the past, Lynn is an old seminary teacher, and this comes from his boyhood experiences. He speaks of a time in his life, an event that happened, that when he shared it with me, it gives me the perfect opportunity to teach a difficult scriptural principle. He spoke of growing up in Wendover. He spoke of helping out on a cattle drive one fall on the McKellar Ranch working for Pete. The job, of course, was to round up the cows and drive them 18 miles to the main part of the ranch. Now, as anyone knows who's ever been on one of those drives, it can be pretty monotonous. So, Lynn and his friend, John, were both getting ready to graduate high school and go on to college. So their heads were full of hopes and dreams and wonderful plans for the future. As they rode along behind the cows, they talked. Lynn said, after gathering the herd, we pushed them about seven miles north, the bed of the herd down, near Hall's Meadow, where the water would keep them close for the night. We then headed out at a much faster pace to get to the ranch before dark. We got there just before dinner, and we're kind of continuing our discussion about our dreams and our aspirations, he said. As we sat at the table, Pete listened for a long time and then finally broke the silence with some wisdom that has been priceless in my life. He simply leaned back, and you can just picture an old cowpoke doing this. He simply leaned back and he said, Boys, I love your dreams and the hopes you have. But as you go forward with your head in the clouds, be sure to keep both feet in the stirrups and your fanny on the saddle. End of quote. Lynn says that was a quiet way to say, be wise in all you do and use all the intelligence you have to be realistic and grounded in your pursuits. Now, do you know what old Pete meant? Well, if you've ever been on horseback, of course you know. From experience, when you're working a horse and you lose a stirrup, you're off balance. When you lose a stirrup, and your seat in the saddle, you're probably headed for the dirt. Long drop, sudden stop. Keep your feet in the stirrups and your seat in the saddle, and you're on for the ride. It's really that simple. Now, my point. My friends, the word humble comes from the same root as humus. Humus is soil, therefore connected. To be humble is to be rooted, grounded, solid, and balanced with God and man. Have you ever noticed that in the scriptures, especially in the Book of Mormon, pride is always associated with elevation? Pride lifts itself up, while humility abases itself. The great and spacious building which represented the pride of the earth was where? High and lifted up without a firm foundation, and like a rider without seat or stirrups, it fell. While pride 
lifts its nose into the clouds, riding a high horse, and eventually always gets bucked off. Humility stays firmly in the saddle when the ride gets rough. Evidently, <laughs> Lynn took the counsel to heart. He said, quote, At five foot three, I would probably have had false hopes to ever play in the NBA. End of quote. My thoughts for you, my friend. This Christmas season, humble yourself. Bring yourself down to solid ground. Understand who God is in your relationship to him in a healthy way. And as you do that and open yourself up to his spirit, he will speak to you and comfort you like no other Christmas before. Now back on the subject of stories about Christmas. More than 700 years before the Savior was born, the people of Jerusalem were frightened. Their peace was threatened by a ruthless power from the north called Assyria, who was taking over the country. Judah's neighbors, Ephraim and Syria, to the north, were hastily forming political alliances to guard against the threat. Judah's king, Ahaz, refused to join the alliance, choosing instead to bargain with Assyria directly for his nation's safety. Well, because of that, the kings of Ephraim and Syria to the north were angered that Ahaz and Judah would not join their alliance, and they promised, threatened as it were, to invade Judah and remove Ahaz as king. Knowing all this, Isaiah the prophet came to Ahaz and told him not to fear the two allied kings. Don't listen to them, Isaiah said. Be at peace and trust the Lord. But the imminent threat was too much for the faithless Ahaz. In his heart, he would not, could not, as he sought, believe Isaiah. Their doom, Judah's doom, seemed sure in spite of Isaiah's promises. Knowing that, Isaiah said to Ahaz, and you'll recognize this, Ask thee a sign of the Lord thy God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. He is commanding Ahaz to seek for a sign of God. Now, if we do that of our own, that's evil. But when the Lord commands us to ask for one and we don't do it, that's evil as well, not to mention foolish. Moreover, to be told that Ahaz could have his sign from the depths of hell or the heights of heaven, whatever he wants, must mean that God is very determined that this doubting king believe his promises. Stubbornly, Ahaz refused to ask, I will not tempt the Lord my God. Isaiah was disgusted with him and with all of the faithless nation, and said the Lord would give him a sign anyway. 
and this is the sign. Quote, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. End of quote. Now, my dear friends, I know you have heard that verse every Christmas season. A virgin shall bear a son. Imagine if you're Ahaz and you hear that. A virgin bearing a son. That's impossible. And that's exactly the point. God did the impossible on that first Christmas when Jesus was born. But you say, Ahaz would not live to see that sign fulfilled. It'd be 700 years into the future. So why did the Lord give Ahaz a sign that he wouldn't live to see? Because this was not just a sign to Ahaz, but to all the children of God since the days of Isaiah that doubt God and his promises. Every Christmas, my dear friends, is a reminder that God did once and can do again the impossible. Any of you listening to me that are troubled for any reason and seek peace need only look at the miracle of Christmas to awaken your latent faith. This is, at least here in North America, ironically the season of the coldest weather and yet for a time the warmest hearts. When Christmas comes, God is with us again in our hearts our homes, and even our music. One need only look how our world changes this time of year to know that Christ is still in Christmas. Indeed, Christmas is an everlasting sign since the days of Isaiah to a doubting world that God is still with us, that he still loves us, and that he can still do the impossible, this time, even for you, for me. Thank you for listening. Many of the stories you heard today have been published and are archived at glenrossonstories.com. If you would like more information, you can communicate with us there. We will be back again with another podcast next week. <music>